Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Chris Stroud. And this is the show where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics, always from an authentically Catholic perspective. Dr. Doctor is brought to you in part by the generous underwriting of our friends at CMF Curo. Learn more at mycatholichealthcare.org. Live your Catholic faith in your healthcare with CMF Curo. Today, our guest will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Joining us will be Dr. Jennifer Perone, a complex surgical oncology fellow at Moffitt Cancer Center in Tampa, who's going to teach us about breast cancer. Chris, why is the topic of breast cancer so important? Yeah, listeners, stay tuned. I think this is going to be a very worthwhile and informative uh, episode. Why is breast cancer so important? Well, Every one of us either is a woman or is born of a woman, uh, so it's very relevant. <laughs> <laughs> but we're also going to learn as we talk that not all breast cancers, interestingly, are in women, but some are, are in <clears throat> men. But just to sort of kick off and give listeners a perspective, there's almost 300,000 new cases of invasive breast cancer that will be diagnosed this year in women. About 50,000 of those are a special kind that I know we'll talk about called ductal carcinoma in situ, sort of an early or or kind of a precancer's cancer. But almost 50,000 women this year will die prematurely from breast cancer. So those statistics alone, I think, really paint a picture of relevance. Chris, since you are so focused on women's health care as an obstetrician gynecologist, maybe you can help take us through what is the normal development of breast tissue from the birth of a woman till adulthood? Yeah, you know, the, the breast tissue in a woman is present uh, as a fetus in her mother's embryo, which is fascinating to think about. And that tissue lies dormant for many, many weeks and then actually many years until really pubescence or puberty, when the secondary sexual characteristics uh, began to show themselves because the ovaries began to awaken and they began to make increased levels of estrogen. And some of the breast tissue begins to grow and divide. Um, Most of the breast tissue in in a young girl is actual breast tissue, whereas in an older woman, it's more fatty tissue and less breast tissue. But very early on in the puberty process, that glandular breast tissue begins to divide and to grow and to propagate and mature, so to speak, on a mission. And that mission is to breastfeed babies later on in life. So when you say fatty tissue or glandular tissue, so you're saying in younger women, it's mostly tissue that makes and delivers milk. Is that right? right. Yeah, the, the ducts. It's a glandular tissue. And there's not that much fatty tissue and prepubescent and early pubescent girls. That changes over time as a woman ages. But that early breast tissue begins to grow and divide and develop and start along a process that ends in mature breast. And a mature breast is one that's ready to feed a child. That's what they're for. Okay, Chris. Now, my understanding is something happens during pregnancy to prepare breast to, to make milk. What are the changes that go on in a woman's breast while she is pregnant? Yeah, it, you know, it, it's really a journey of preparation uh, where that tissue begins changing and the hormones from the pituitary gland, namely prolactin, in addition to the elevated estrogen levels, start to act on uh, that ductal tissue. And our astute listeners will remember us talking about the protective effects of pregnancy on breast cancer and and the harmful effects of abortion on breast cancer. Because once that breast tissue begins to change and be differentiated, so to speak, it never, it never can go back. Yeah. It's, it's on a one way street. And if that process is interrupted, it may increase the chance that that young woman will go on and develop breast cancer. But I know our guest is going to have some great information on that for us as we go. Yes. And that's why I thought it was good to lay a groundwork of what normal uh, development, not only from childhood of a breast is, but also what happens uh, in pregnancy. So Chris, what happens to breast tissue if a woman has a miscarriage? 
Yeah, that's a great question. Similar in some ways to uh, to an abortion, but yet importantly not. Um, and I'm going to pause and defer. I think some of those kind of detailed physiologic anatomy questions to our guests, who I know will be much better at it than me. <laughs> but you know, Tom, I think about. Uh, I just had a, a breast cancer patient, um, and not to start on the somber note, but. Uh, I just learned that she died, but I met her and diagnosed her breast cancer in 2011. Wow. And, you know, I think her story is a good one in that she presented to another healthcare provider with some sort of bloody nipple discharge. And she did, like most of us do, when we see something that we don't like, we convince ourselves that it's really nothing. Uh, I'm sure that you see patients with skin changes like that every single day. Yes. And she had convinced herself for a long time that it was really nothing. Then eventually I met her and I went to do a breast exam and I sort of paused because I, I, I couldn't understand what was wrong with her breast. It took me a few minutes to figure out what was wrong with her breast was it had been completely replaced with tumor. Oh um, yeah, her entire breast was one large breast cancer. So you know, I sent her to the appropriate specialist, like our guest, and they began evaluating her. And remarkably, she had breast cancer all over her body. Uh, it was in her bones, it was in her lungs, it was in her brain, and she survived very well for you know over ten years, despite this horrific diagnosis. But she would tell anybody that would listen, and I know if she's listening to us tonight, that she would say she probably cost herself some time with her children by delaying that diagnosis. Now, there's a harsh reality that I'm sure our guests will go over with us tonight, and that is, you know, widespread breast cancer in very young women is a horrible disease. Um, and the outcomes are usually not what we would like them to be. But in those cases, sometimes days make a difference. Um, and in someone who's dying of anything, what would they give for another day with their children and loved ones? So I think one of our takeaways, spoiler alert, is don't ignore breast symptoms. When there's something that seems wrong, find somebody to look into that. The good old, if you see something, say something. <laughs> it might be you you're saying it about. Chris, that's a great story to kind of set the table for this because we always like to bring it down to individual persons because that's who we're concerned about. So before our break, I'll pose our medical trivia question of the day, a category perhaps never heard on Jeopardy. I invented it, perhaps. Baby babbling etymology. Yes. So think of one of the first sounds that babies make that sounds like talking. A sound that a mother sees is a sign of the baby calling for her. So what are two or three words that actually derive from that early sound that infants make? You're going to have to hang around till the end of the show to get the answer. And we'll be back after the break with our guest, Dr. Jennifer Perone here on Dr. Doctor. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor and this episode's guest, Dr. Jennifer Perone. Now, Jennifer uh, is a physician. She went to medical school at that little place over in Ohio called the Ohio State University. She went to the University of Texas Medical Branch, Galveston, completed a lengthy five-year general surgery training program, and then three years dedicated to research in clinical sciences, specifically in melanoma research, which makes Tom very, very happy. Uh, and she's a first-year complex general surgical oncology fellow. Now, she's not complex, but that's the name of the <laughs> fellowship training program. And it's at the Moffitt Cancer Center uh, in Tampa, Florida. She's recently married, and she's the national secretary of the Catholic Medical Association. And any of you listeners that were fortunate enough to, uh, to attend our recent Catholic Medical Association annual meeting in Orlando, you had the pleasure of hearing her talk about the joy of medical research. But now we're going to talk to Jennifer about the, the joy of her life and specialty. Jennifer, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Thank you so much. And thank you guys for having me. So Jennifer, I have to start by saying uh, again, thank you for joining us on our episode tonight. But I don't know many female surgeons and I know even fewer female surgical oncologists. 
How did you choose this specialty? And what's it like to be, uh, you know, one of few women in a specialty? Well, Chris, I'd start by saying you might need to get out more. There, there are more of us than you think. Well, um, I wouldn't disagree <laughs> with you there at all. No, it's actually awesome. Uh, there's a lot more women in surgery than there ever used to be. Um, oh. And it's growing by leaps and bounds, which is always amazing. And a lot of women actually in, in surgical oncology, actually one of the ways, though, that I chose the program I'm at right now was because I was interviewed by a female pancreatic, uh, a pancreas cancer surgeon. Mm. And I was like, I want to be like her. She's amazing. Oh. She's just as amazing in real life as she is uh, over a Zoom interview, by the way. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, you know, for me, it's really always been a call, you know, a, a vocation to surgery for sure. And then um, for me, I always felt God was speaking to me very clearly that I was called to walk with people in darkness. And mm. I think there are very few places that are darker than a cancer diagnosis, mm. um, you know, and, and that's really when people need you to not just be a good doctor not just a good surgeon, but but a true physician and a, and a true person of faith. And, and I think that that's really what has attracted me most to surgical oncology. You know, it's interesting. We, we've talked to a lot of physicians about why and how they chose their specialty. And it's always fascinating, but I think so often it boils down to a great mentor like you reference. And I always, in my own decision, I wonder if I wanted to be the mentor or if I wanted to be in that specialty or both. But it, it really speaks to how important our mentoring relationships are yeah. because we never know how and who we're influencing. Let's, let's move on to our topic uh, of breast cancer. And uh, while it might sound a little elementary, Give our listeners a real sense of what is breast cancer, cancer in general, and specifically okay. breast cancer. So I, you know, it sounds elementary, but then you start getting into it, and it's it's actually really complicated. And it's funny, you know, because breast cancer, everybody's like, oh, it's breast cancer, it's really basic. I will tell you, as somebody who's studying all different types of cancer, breast cancer actually has such a wide breadth of options for treatment, and so many different uh, studies that we do on it, and, and it's got a real complexity to it. But the basics of it is basically breast cancer is a type of cancer that starts in the breast. And so cancer is any sort of cell that grows out of control. And breast cancers can really start from multiple different parts of the breast. So most of them are going to be what we call ductal cancers. So they start in the ducts that carry milk to the nipple. Uh, but then you can also have lobular cancers. So those start in the glands that make breast milk. And then you can also have other different types of cancer in the breast that are less common. So these are things like sarcomas or phylloides tumors um, or even lymphomas sometimes. But they're really the most common ones when people really talk about breast cancer. They're really talking about some form of, of cell growth that's gotten out of control, either in those, uh, those ducts that, that carry milk to the nipple or the, the, the glands that make the breast milk. Okay, Jennifer, as a woman and a surgeon, you can answer this question for me because I can't. We are recording this in the month of October. And today at work, I received a little pink wristband to wear that mm -hmm. said breast cancer awareness on it. Why are these being passed out in the month of October all over the country? Why does even the National Football League have pink everywhere during the month of October? Well, because the month of October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. So this is the month out of the 12 months of the year that we really focus on raising awareness about breast cancer, um, about the need for mammograms and screening, about uh, female and male breast cancer. And even the NFL has taken part of this, which is great. Um, but the whole goal is to raise awareness that this is a thing and to hopefully avoid situations kind of like the story Chris was telling earlier, mm. that if we raise awareness to people that breast cancer happens in the young and the old, that hopefully we can we can catch it early. So Jennifer, if you're at one of those NFL stadiums packed full of a hundred thousand, let's say all women at this particular game, um, be a great game. <laughs> <laughs> uh, are there women in that audience that you could say, as a cancer surgeon, they're more likely than the woman sitting next to them to develop breast cancer? I mean, who is most likely to develop a cancer sure. of the breast? So. All things being equal, the most the women who are most likely to develop breast cancer are going to be older women. So mm. when we talk about ways cancer develops, there's kind of two different ways, um, two different big ways. You know, we think about either like genetic risk, and these are, are going to be younger women with breast cancer. 
but also just the idea that over time there's enough um, cell turnover and enough things that happen that you can get errors basically that can lead to cancer, which is why most women that get breast cancer are older women. But when we talk about, you know, risk of developing breast cancer, um, the people who are at risk are really going to be women with a family history of breast or ovarian cancer. So we talk about women with genetic breast cancer syndromes like BRCA. I'm sure you've heard of Angelina Jolie having her mastectomy and her, you know, um, her ovaries taken out because of her family history. Um, also, women with a personal history of breast cancer obviously have an increased risk. Um also, you know, surprisingly enough, most people don't think about it, but women with a history of radiation exposure. So people who are treated for like Hodgkin's disease as a child, um, they also have an increased risk of breast cancer. And then women like myself <laughs> who are older than 30 when they have their first child, um, they also have an increased risk of breast cancer. And then also those women who've had hormone replacement therapy with estrogen or progesterone for more than five years. And then when we talk about breast cancer, we talk about how it, I think I heard you guys talking about this before the break, how it can be related to your cycles and to um, how often you ovulate and, and really it's hormonally related, right? So women who started having periods at an age younger than 12 or women who went through menopause older than 55 are also at risk. But the big risks that we talk about are really going to be your own personal history or family history and then also age. Now, so there are, are there modifiable risk factors for women? Because on the American Cancer Society website, I read even something about alcohol, obesity, yeah. inactivity, uh, lack of breastfeeding, and birth control pills. What yeah, do you think so about any of those? I think those are all accurate. Um, so we talk about you know additional risk factors that are, that are kind of agreed upon, as you mentioned, on the American Cancer website, which is a great website to look at. Um, so the biggest risk factor is still family history. Um, but the other risk factor really is obesity. We know that that's one of the biggest risk factors for breast cancer is women who are obese because you actually have more estrogen production. When we talk about the hormonally, be, breast cancer in general being hormonally related, we know that we're producing hormones and people who are obese have more fat and are actually producing more aromatic um, estrogen in their, their fat cells. And then this also goes back to lack of childbearing, lack of breastfeeding and birth control. Birth control, again, is hormonally based. Um, but when we talk about lack of breastfeeding and lack of childbearing, again, these all have to do with your hormones and, and how much of estrogen and progesterone you're making and how often those are um, excreted and how much. So this all goes back with the lack of childbearing and the, and the, the cycles and, and how often you're menstruating and all that too. So Jennifer, this is great stuff, and uh, we've talked about it with other guests on other episodes, but I just want to be really clear for <clears> listeners. <throat> so the absence of pregnancy is bad for the development of breast cancer, correct? That is correct. So good to be pregnant. The absence, yeah. of, the absence of breastfeeding, that's bad as well. Yep. Uh, my wife likes to tell patients those things are not for decoration. Um, <laughs> that they're to be used, and so using them actually could protect you from uh, from breast cancer. And then um, if you could, to the degree possible, what about this link that's often talked about with pregnancy termination, abortion, and breast cancer? Yeah. So that's a hard one. Um, so I think it really requires, I'm going to get a little bit deep for a second here. Um, <laughs> right. Because I, I want to get you know my love of research. I want to be really clear about what the data shows. Um, so right now there's no solid evidence that either in, induced abortions or spontaneous abortion, so miscarriage, increases breast cancer risk. Um, and I really want to dive for a second when we talk about um, when we talk about this, because I want to explain where this data comes from, because there can be a lot of misconception. So, you know, a few things. One, women who are pregnant before the age of 20 actually have a lower breast, risk of breast cancer than women who have their first full-term pregnancy after the age of 30 or 35. And, and that risk continues to go down as your number of pregnancies go up. So, the women who've had, you know, eight children are actually at a much lower risk of breast cancer. Um, and, and again, we talked about how this is all related to your menstrual cycles. Um, so we also know that, you know, being pregnant also changes your, your level of hormones. So there have been a lot of different studies that have looked at the link between abortion or miscarriage and breast cancer. And I just want to pause for a second and kind of go into the idea of what type of studies these were. And I'm going to try to make it brief. But the best kind of a study that we can do is a randomized control trial. So basically we say half of these women are going to get an abortion and the other half aren't. And we're going to follow them and see who gets breast cancer. 
that's not really ethical. We're not going to do that. Those are not options. <laughs> Thank right? you. Thank you. <laughs> so we, we have to rely on these things called observational studies. And so observational studies are basically either what are called case control studies. So we're looking at a group of people who already have a disease like cancer. So we call that the cases. And we look at people who don't have this cancer. We call it the controls. And then we look at the differences in their past exposures. And so this is a retrospective design. Basically, we're asking people who have breast cancer if they've ever had an abortion or if they've ever had a miscarriage. And if you really think about it carefully, this, this has an inherent aspect of bias in it. So they have this recall bias. And it's, it, you could theoretically say that you know people who have had an abortion, we all, have, I'm sure you guys have talked about the, the mental strain of abortion and, and the spiritual strain that this does. You could potentially say that there is a, a link of guilt in there and, and a desire to blame oneself. So even if you, you said there wasn't, that there could be shame about not wanting to admit that they've had an abortion. So there's really this aspect of a recall bias mm-hmm. that, that exists in these case control story studies. Then you also have cohort studies. And so this is less prone to that study. And basically, you gather baseline information about a group of people who don't have breast cancer and you follow them over a period of time. So I say all this for a reason, because there have been several studies that have been done looking at breast cancer and abortion. And these studies um, have mostly been cohort and case and, and prospective you know, case control studies. Long story short is these large studies there. In fact, there was a collaborative group on hormonal factors in breast cancer out of Oxford in England. Um, and they looked at abortion and breast cancer li- risk. And, and they actually altogether, there were about 39,000 women with breast cancer um, who were compared to about 48,000 of women who didn't have breast cancer. And this was a case control study. And they did find concern for a leak. But again, this was a case control study. So in a separate cohort study, which also had over 25,000 women, there was no link. So there have been several studies. The long story short here is there's not really good data to support the linkage in this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as of right now, the you know American Cancer Society and ACOG, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, don't say that there is a link. Now, that being said, this is all based on in imperfect um, data that's being done. But I mean, this is these are these are fifty three separate studies that have been done in sixteen yeah. different countries. You know, so so I, I don't want to say that they're that it's not good data. It's just not perfect. Sure. I'd like to point out that, to their credit, the American Cancer Society, the United Nations Nations World Health Organization, does say that or hormonal contraceptives are a risk factor. So they did look at the data and sure. admit it. So I, I don't think we can necessarily say that they have a a hidden agenda here. Can we? But, and I love the way you describe that. And so thank you to our listeners. And and I think you've done a brilliant job of describing something Tom and I and other guests have struggled with when it comes to the COVID vaccine and, uh, and COVID in general. And, and that is this idea that scientific studies are complicated things. Um, and, and someone will run on the internet with, an article and say, look, here is proof that, um, you know, wearing glasses destroys your vision. Well, it turns <laughs> out that it turns out that that article was not, it wasn't well done. And there were biases, as you mentioned. Yeah. And that, that only is a description of what science really is, isn't it? It's yeah. back and forth and critique and re-critique and, and questioning and constant questioning. But, but thank you for doing such a great job of pointing that out for our listeners. Okay. Okay, Jennifer, now let's go Olivia Newton-John, to paraphrase her, and let's get clinical. Okay, what are some of the clinical signs, what are some of the physical signs that a woman might have breast cancer and should be concerned? So I want to start by saying something that's really important. The vast majority of women who are diagnosed with breast cancer have no physical clinical signs which is why screening tests like mammograms are so important. Now, to be specific, you mean they don't feel a lump, right? Right. They don't feel a lump. Correct. Now, that being said, um, there are some women like the patient you mentioned before the break, Chris, who, who will have, you know, discharge from, from the nipple. And for us, it always raises a red flag if it's from just one breast versus both. Um, you know, most commonly, these are what are called introductal papillomas. That doesn't mean that they couldn't become breast cancer, that they're not breast cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, but the big things that as a, as a cancer surgeon, I think about are going to be lumps, bumps, you know, so the American Cancer Society doesn't officially endorse doing monthly self breast exams, but I don't think it's a bad habit for women to be in. 
um, you know, of noticing any, any new lumps or bumps that you notice, I think is important. Also, the other thing we look at is any sort of asymmetry that's new in your breast. Also, um, any skin changes in the breast are really important. You can actually develop what's called an inflammatory breast cancer and you can get, um, reddening and it almost looks like an infection in the breast. So we worry about things like mastitis in women who aren't breastfeeding. That's, that's not really that common or that normal. So those are kind of the big things we're thinking about. Uh, but again, the vast majority of these things are found on screening studies, which is why we recommend them. So who should be screened? How should they be screened? And how often? So who should be screened? There is discussion of 40 versus 45. I'll just go out and say, I think all women should get an annual mammogram starting at the age of 40. Every one of them. There are people who should getting them who should be getting them earlier than that, and those are women with a family history of breast cancer. So, women who have BRCA one or BRCA two mutations, women who, women who've had a first degree relative uh, with the BRCA gene mutation who haven't been tested, um, or they have certain syndromes. And trust me, you would know if you did called like Lee Farmini or Cowden syndrome. So I don't want everybody on the radio to be like, maybe I have it. Trust me, you would know. Okay, <laughs> this, is, this is not a you're making things up. Okay, the big thing we, you know, but also people who've had radiation to the chest when they were between the ages of ten and thirty years old, they should actually start getting screened earlier than forty. And so a lot of the early risk is based on women with a family history, so mm-hmm. close first degree relatives or multiple first degree relatives with breast and ovarian cancer. And that's something you should talk to your primary care doctor about, and they can see if you're at an increased risk. Uh, but everybody else, age of 40, getting a mammogram. You know, Jennifer, I, I hear this recently, uh, not as much as I used to, but uh, occasionally a woman will say, you just told me that radiation was a risk factor for breast cancer. And now in the next sentence, you're telling me I need to go have my breast irradiated with a mammogram. <laughs> and and they look at me like I have two heads and I struggle sometimes <laughs> uh, to answer that. How do you answer that question for our listeners? So the amount of radiation you get from a mammogram is less than you get from flying. So we're talking about two very different doses or types of radiation. So radiation to treat lymphoma is high dose radiation that you're getting to the chest or to the neck or things like that. We actually use radiation to treat breast cancer. But again, these are different types of radiation and different doses. And the different doses are the important part. The amount of radiation you get from a mammogram is is minimal. Honestly, it's probably about the same amount as you get from standing in front of a microwave. Um, And on that note, with diagnosis, we're going to take a break and come back with the treatment of breast cancer. Dr. Jennifer Perone here on Dr. Doctor. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor with Dr. Jennifer Perone talking about breast cancer. So Jennifer, as we move on to sort of um, from early screening to diagnosis, I have a lot of patients asking me about thermal imaging of the breast versus mammography, and especially lately, I think, MRIs of the breast. In the community where I practice, there are a lot of MRI imaging centers, and a lot of patients are asking me, is MRI better? And if it is, why don't I just throw away mammogram and just get an MRI? What do you think? So I think you have to define the term better, Mm -hmm. right? Um, there's actually a great book out there, and I'm not going to talk about it too much, but it's called uh, Less Medicine, More Health. And so the idea behind this is uh, MRIs pick up a lot of things that mammograms don't pick up. You're right. But a lot of those things are completely benign breast findings. And so women wind up getting a lot more biopsies and a lot more imaging, a lot more things done that they don't need that can come with their own risks and complications that aren't necessarily indicated. There are certain women that we will get additional, that we'll get different imaging on. For example, young women have really dense breasts and mammograms aren't good for those. And we know that women with really fibrocystic breasts, mammograms aren't great for. Okay. So it's very possible that you'd get a mammogram and that, you know, your, your doctor would say this, this isn't a high quality image. You know, you'd need an MRI because your breasts are too dense and the x-rays don't penetrate well. That's fine. Women who we know are high risk for breast disease, like I was talking about a few minutes ago with BRCA1, BRCA2, they actually do get MRIs because we know that their risk of breast cancer is so high. But for all things considered, actually ultrasound and mammography are the two best methods for detecting breast cancer. And they're what we use most commonly. Mm-hmm. And I really think that MRI is a lot, it's, as my dad said, long run for a short slide. Um, so it's, <laughs> it's not necessarily, uh, you don't necessarily get 
get more out of it. In mm. fact, it can actually create more issues for women. You know, while we're on that topic, the other question that I get bombarded with is 3D mammography. You know, first it was analog and then digital. And now with digital, 3D versus 2D. What, what are your feelings and what's your advice for our listeners there? I kind of defer to the radiologists on that. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say that, I, you know, digital mammography is wonderful. It's really given us a lot of, of alternatives and a lot better imaging than just old fashioned mammography. Mm-hmm. Um, we mostly do 3d mammography. Um, and again, you're, you're kind of getting more, more views. So I do think that that's always more helpful, but I, I will defer to the breast radiologists on that one. Um, personally. <laughs> so let's talk treatment, Jennifer. To cure is to cut. When and how is surgery part of breast cancer treatment? Um, I do agree to cure is to cut. And that really (laughs) brings to the primary goal of surgery and breast cancer treatment. So the way I think about it, there are really two purposes for surgery and breast cancer. The one is a curative intent, right? So these are women with stage one, two, three breast cancer where, you know, we can... and just to pause for a second to talk about staging, that's really talking about how advanced your breast cancer is. So stage one is really local, something we could cut out. Stage two, is either it's a bigger tumor, it's gone to your lymph nodes, one or two lymph nodes also can still be cut out. Stage three is multiple lymph nodes, maybe a bigger tumor. And then stage four, as most people know, means that the cancer is left outside that local area and it's gone to distant sites. So in stage one through three breast cancer, the purpose of surgery is, is kind of twofold. One is to hopefully cure the cancer by cutting all of it out. But two, it also, when we look at those lymph nodes, it also helps us know what additional therapy somebody might need. So do they need chemotherapy after surgery? Do they need additional radiation? What are, what are the options that they need? Um, but those are really the big goals for stages one through three. How has surgery changed in the last 25 to 50 years? Because I remember in medical school learning about these horrific procedures called a Halstead or something and seeing women who are like missing large parts of their anatomy under the skin. Yeah, we we don't do those anymore. (laughs) So it used to be that, uh, and this kind of goes back to really quickly, the second point of surgery in, in breast cancer, which is a palliative procedure. So women with stage four breast cancer, where it's it's painful or it's bleeding or it's, it's something that is, is really, you know, it's infected, something like that. Then we can start talking about something like a mastectomy, which has changed dramatically from when you were in medical school. Apparently it used to be that you would take, well, that was 150 years ago. (laughs) Amen. I know that's true. I I have to remember that. Leave the past Um, in the past. (laughs) It used to be that you would take basically like the entire, you know, almost like the entire pec muscle. Like, you know, you just take so much. That's not really how we do it now. Um, so these days we still have what's called a modified radical mastectomy. We leave all the muscle behind, but we do take the entire breast tissue. And then you have a radical mastectomy where you also take the entire axilla and those lymph node contents. That's a pretty rare procedure these days. Axilla is medical for armpit. Yes. Thank you. Sorry. (laughs) Um, and then the most common thing we do these days is what's called a lumpectomy or a partial mastectomy where we basically go in and we get just that tumor area and the surrounding tissue. And then usually depending on, unless you're, you're older over 75, but usually we'll go in and take what we, what are called sentinel lymph nodes, meaning they're like the guardians to the, the, cancer cells leaving out of the breast tissue. So they're like the first one or two lymph nodes that cancer cells hit when they leave out of the breast. And we find those with uh, usually a blue dye and some nuclear medicine radio tracers. And so for most surgeries, we're going to take out a lump. So meaning we're going to take out the the cancer we can see. And then we're also going to take out um, one or two of those lymph nodes to see if cancer is spread out of the breast and into the lymph nodes. So what, when do we add to the surgery that you've done with other treatments? Almost always is the short answer. So when we talk about types of breast cancer, we're talking about several different things. So as I mentioned earlier, there are pathologic types. So meaning what we call invasive ductal cancer. So coming from those milk ducts or invasive lobular cancer coming from the glands or those other types. But even among um, those pathologic types, meaning what the, the you know, the pathologists see when they look under the slide, there are, there are subtypes of that. So as we've been talking about so much, breast cancer is hormone related. So we look at estrogen and progesterone levels on these breast cancer cells to see if the breast cancer responds to estrogen and progesterone. 
So women with breast cancer will hear us talking about ER and PR. Those are the hormone receptor levels. And so women who are ERPR positive, um, which is really the most common type of breast cancer, they will also get hormonal therapy, or at least it will be recommended. Uh, something like what's called an aromatase inhibitor, or, or um, I, I'm going to butcher how to say it right now because my brain's farting, but tristizumab. I can't even say it. <laughs> but you know, Jennifer, um, it's, prob- it's probably worth pausing, but if, if a woman learns that her breast cancer was estrogen receptor positive, that's actually good news, isn't it? It's great news. And and often I think in the media that gets twisted around and the woman will say, estrogen caused my breast cancer. I, it had receptors on it. But in reality, we should be celebrating that because these drugs that you pronounce are going to work well because we can give them anti-estrogens, right? Right. Right. And the drug that I was butchering is tristezumab. That's actually for her too. Uh, tamoxifen is the other drug that we use in ER and PR. So estrogen recept- responsive breast cancer is you'll get tamoxifen, which is a pill you take. Yeah. Um, and so every woman who has that will be recommended to take that. Jennifer, I know you love research from listening to you at the Catholic Medical <laughs> Association, but you know, as you look forward, you know, 15, 20 years, what will be different about breast cancer treatment for our daughters and granddaughters compared to the past? Well, what I hope will be different is what we're already seeing, which is really this idea that we're able to sequence everybody's individual breast cancers um, and hopefully be able to find different um, different pathologic variants and have all these different medications that can treat it. Um, and the other thing we're seeing is already the advent of um, using other medications like, for example, checkpoint blockade inhibitors, which is one of my personal passions because we use it in melanoma. But checkpoint blockade inhibitors are actually now approved as of, I believe it's July of this year, for use in triple negative breast cancer. Triple Um, negative. Okay. ERPR, progesterone receptor. What's the third? The third one is HER2-new. And actually HER2-new is usually kind of, it's kind of a negative thing, but the advantage of HER2-new is that again, we have specific medicines that treat it. Trastazumab, which I still can't say, otherwise known as Herceptin. It's a lot easier to say Herceptin. Um, <laughs> and plus or minus Progetta, which is another specific HER2 So if a medicine. woman's cancer has, or a man's, has one of those three, yeah. that's good news. So the bad news is the triple negative. Tell us about Correct. that. So triple negative means that there's no expression of estrogen or progesterone, and they don't make much of this HER2 protein. And this is more common in younger women, also more common in uh, African-American women. Um, and then again, this this BRCA1, it, it, it kind of sucks to have that um, it, because it, this triple negative is more common in them as well. And these do tend to grow and spread faster and in general do have what we'd say a worse prognosis. This is only about 10 to 15% of all breast cancers. And the reason why it's bad is, as we've mentioned, we don't have these targeted therapies. We don't have the tamoxifen or the Herceptin mm-hmm. or any of that. What about um, the checkpoint inhibitors, though? Yeah. Do so, those work in the triple negative? So they do, but not 100%. And I think that's important to say. You know, the prognosis of triple negative breast cancer was traditionally much worse than just run-of-the-mill breast cancer. And it still is. Uh, but it's better. You know, we, we definitely have more options. We were able to look and see which chemotherapies would work. And now we have pembrolizumab, which has shown um, an improved uh, survival. And so this was, uh, there was this trial, it's called the Keynote 522 trial. And it looked at patients with triple negative breast cancer um, who got neoadjuvant chemotherapy, meaning chemotherapy before surgery, and um, this checkpoint blockade inhibitor called pembrolizumab um, versus and then got surgery and then got that again after surgery, just the pembrolizumab. And they found that there was a difference in what's called the pathologic complete response, meaning when we did surgery and we put that tumor under the microscope, there was no evidence of cancer in that specimen. And so having a pathologic complete response is a big deal. It dramatically decreases your risk of having recurrent cancer. Well, Um, Jennifer, I mean, it's fascinating listening to you um, talk about this and making it sound so understandable, uh, unlike some of our guests who make it sound ununderstandable. <laughs> you know, I would love to know, as I know our listeners would, um, uh, as a faithful Catholic, how does your faith intersect with your research and with dealing with these complex, really life-altering, changing conditions? 
Uh, well, I spent a lot of time in prayer asking God for wisdom. Uh. Um, no, I think the biggest thing is recognizing, and this is similar to what I said at the CMA, you know, as Catholics, we are, I believe God has given us a gift and an opportunity to, to be with patients in their darkest moments. Um, and I think these are the patients who really need us to be that light, to bring a light of hope in those dark, in those dark moments. I also think that as Catholics, you know, God has really tasked us with, um, with being that light. And sometimes being that light means doing the studies that help find options for people Hmm. that help, you know, maybe allow that person's mother to, like you said, live hopefully more than just one more day, but hopefully 10 more years or 15 more years, you know, and I think God gives us great gifts and wisdom. And I think God really, I firmly believe God wants health and goodness and wellness for all people, you know, and so he's going to keep giving us the wisdom to keep pursuing truth and hopefully start finding answers and additional therapies to, to give people more time and to, you know, bring people back to their families. Well, listeners, you know, if you didn't have another reason to go to the next Catholic Medical Association annual <laughs> meeting, now you do because uh, that's the kind of stuff that you're going to hear at these annual meetings. You don't have to be a doctor to go. Anybody uh, can go. But I, when I hear you say that, I think about uh, Tom and other people's discussion of, you know, the intersection of faith and science. They're, they're not mutually exclusive. In fact, hardly. They're, they work together. They work together really, really well. And I'm reminded of that listening, uh, listening to you talk about it. Well, you've been talking about, you know, giving women more hope with this too. Are, are they having more days, more years of life with these advances in treatment? Yeah. You know, I I think one of the things we see is that over the last 25 years, the, um, the rate of breast cancer has increased. So we're having more people with breast cancer, but the adjusted death rates have really been falling. So on average, it's fallen about 1.3% each year between 2010 and 2019. And 2019 is really the last time we have the the SEER. So this is the big, you know, cancer database registries that we have. That's the last data we have. Um, but, you know, we've had improved five-year survival rates for women with all stages of breast cancer. Mm. Um, and, and that includes women with triple negative breast cancer. So I, I think it's important to know, and if I was going to say one thing to women um, and men who are listening to this, it's that um, there's always hope. Um, and, you know, there's always research being done and there are clinical trials and breast cancer is actually one of the areas of cancer where we've made a lot of progress and where there's a ton of research and a ton of, of information that's out there. So I want to clarify something from you two experts on this. Is it true that the longer, the more days of exposure to estrogen a woman has in her life, the higher the risk of breast cancer? Is that the bottom line for all these hormonal things we're talking about? I'd say more or less, yes. Yeah. I, I, I think, you know, Jennifer, you could if I'm wrong. It, that's a, it's a complicated question, isn't it? It's yes. not, it's but not if, straightforward. If longer breastfeeding, more pregnancies, later onset of, you know, puberty are all associated with lower risk, it would seem that the common denominator is estrogen exposure. Yeah, I think it gets back a bit to um, some of your earlier comments on on research. I mean, the physiology makes sense. The the physiology of the link between abortion and breast cancer makes sense. Now, what has to be done is we have to show that link actually exists in rigorous scientific studies, and and that takes a long time. But I think the proposition makes sense, but that doesn't necessarily mean we have the data and the science to support the proposition. I was just wondering, is that that the hormonal replacement therapy link and the oral contraceptive yeah. link? Is that what's driving? Yeah, I think it is. You know, I, I think we can't just blame estrogen to be clear. I think we have to blame estrogen, progesterone, and probably even prolactin. But I do think estrogen is the biggest player in this, in this, in this party. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the high dose estrogen, the high estrogen exposure does increase your risk of this. Yes. So where can patients get reliable information if they want to learn more? Who do they trust, Jennifer? So I do like the American Cancer Society website. I think Mm. it's a good website. I think it's got very understandable and very basic information on it. And it's got great information about treatments and about staging and about 
the, the stats and the statistics. I mean, a lot of what, you know, even we learn as physicians, we still get from there. When we start talking really complex and we start talking about cancer treatments, um, I, I personally love the NCCN, so the National Cancer Center Networks. Um, so it's nccn.org. Um, and they actually have um, like cancer ther- like cancer treatment guidelines. And I love, I personally love things to just be visual. I'm a visual learner. What I love about the NCCN guidelines is that they're flow sheets. And it's kind of like your choose your own adventure. You're like, yes, I have stage one. Okay, the next option is this. And then the next option is this. Um, and even online, like you click it and it automatically brings you to the next page. Um, and they do actually have information for patients and their families on the NCCN mm-hmm. website, which um, if you're really going with the standard of care and what's best for people, the NCCN is the way to go. Jennifer, I mean, what do you see as as your greatest foe in, in the fight uh, for breast cancer patients? What what gets in the way more times than not? Oh, um, that's a hard question, Chris. Mm. I think if I had to pick something, um, and some, and I, I disclaimer by saying some of this is is based on my own recent experiences yeah. <laughs> um, in clinic this past week. Um, I think some of it really is about um, people's willingness to be open to modern medicine mm-hmm. and to be open to the reality that they have breast cancer and that they need treatment and to really allow us to do what we do without fear. Yeah, I, w- I would echo that as an OBGYN. Fear, boy, is the enemy. Uh, we struggle. Fear of whether it's fear of vaccine or mammography yeah. or our, our bracket testing, it, you know, yeah. it's fear. But I'll tell you, listening to you, I'm just so glad that patients have you that there mm-hmm. at the Moffitt Center doing research and studying and working uh, on breast cancer. And we're lucky to have you as a great uh, as a great Catholic provider. So thank you for your work and your dedication to women's health. Well, thank you guys. Thanks, Jennifer, and we may have you back in the future as you'll explore more of the world of cancer and its treatment. Thanks for being our guest, Jennifer. God bless you. Thank you, you guys. And welcome back to Dr. Doctor, and avid listeners know it's time for the answer to our patented, not actually patented, uh, trivia question. And it's sort of a it's sort of a babbling answer, you might say. Uh, yes, which we do. It's in honor of our own babbling. <laughs> this is on baby babbling sounds. Think of the yes. first sounds that, that babies make, those funny little cooing sort of sounds. And take it away, Tom. Yes. Well, one of those sounds is ma, ma, ma. <laughs> and of course, the mother said, oh, look it, it's calling me, which they will wish a year later they weren't calling them so much, perhaps. But anyway, in fact, I was just reminded this morning, we have a, a sign at our house, who are all these children and why are they calling me mom? So, uh, <laughs> so no, I, don't, it, I don't know if it's true, but I thought babies said DA sounds faster than MA sounds. And they certainly might. That's yeah. why I phrased the question the way I did is a sign that mom thinks the baby's calling for her. So the sound is ma. But where do we actually, what words do we get from it? Well, breast cancer, the breast is called the mammary gland. So that actually comes, I looked it up on the etymology.com website. I love that site. And mammary comes from, well, guess what other word? Mammal comes from that word. Mm. Mammals have mammary glands. And of course, mama comes from it. So mama, mammary gland, mammal, it's all related. and all starts with that little, nice, friendly sound babies make of ma. There is no sound so sweet as that of a child who begins to make sounds. And then there's no activity more fun than listening to a parent's debate whether they're saying their name or some other name. <laughs> yes. So, and we will move on from that to your top three takeaways for this episode, Chris. Yeah, a tremendous episode. I think our listeners have to be high-fiving us and agreeing now. Um, <laughs> Jennifer was really wonderful. And, yes. you know, of the many, many great things she said, one of them I really loved was there's always hope. Uh, and we, as a people, need to hear that, whether we're talking about breast cancer or whether we're talking about, you know, economic policy, um, there's always hope. And so don't give up. You know, the story that I shared, my patient maybe cost herself some time because she had essentially given up and, and was denying what was going on. So there is always hope. We're never without it, especially uh, as Catholics. Maybe on a, a less esoteric, more practical 
point. The second one is that death rates from cancers are actually decreasing, even though the number of cancers are going up. So we're finding more cancer, but the probability of dying from it is less. Uh, and I like to say to postmenopausal patients, this is something you're likely going to die with and not of. Um, and that's, yeah, that's important. It wasn't always true. Um, and then, and then lastly, I think on a very practical note, you and I both heard her say, look, get a mammogram 40 and over, get a mammogram. Uh, the radiation from a mammogram is absolutely negligible. You get more, as she pointed out, standing in front of a mammogram, uh, a microwave. So there is no reason not to get a mammogram, get one. The digital is better than the analog. And she really liked uh, the 3D over the 2D, even though that's not exactly uh, standard at the moment. Chris, those are great points to leave our listeners with, who we thank for being with us for another practical episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend and invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app. We certainly hope you think it's good news and you can find all of our episodes on our website, drdoctor.org. And for those of you that maybe want a deeper dive into some of the topics, check out the website, bonus links and information in our post for each of the episodes. Just click latest at the top, uh, at the top of the main page. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And this is Dr. Chris Stroud. We're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. Tune in for new episodes every Friday and find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.